and welcome to another episode of Two Guys and a Chainsaw. I'm Todd. And I'm Craig. So Craig and I have decided it's about time to go back to our request list and fulfill some long-standing requests that are in our queue. We certainly don't want to disappoint any of our regular steady listeners as well as our new listeners. And this week's movie comes requested by a long-standing listener who has asked us three times to do The Devil's Advocate, the 1997 film starring Al Pacino and the inimitable Keanu Reeves. Now, I think I saw this movie in the theater when it came out. I might be mistaken, but I do remember being in college, pretty sure going to see going to the theater to see this. And this was just, I think, one year, maybe two before, maybe it was one year before Matrix, two years before Matrix. And that changed everything, Keanu Reeves, for all of us. So, He's in this movie. Al Pacino's in this movie. It apparently took quite a bit of convincing to get him in this movie. I think he was shown the script like five times. And after a whole bunch of rewrites, he decided that it wasn't as cliche as it first was for him to play the devil. Surprise, the devil's advocate. (laughs) He's the devil. I tell you, I mean, no, I said this like two weeks ago. You go into a movie and uh, you kind of have seen the previews, you know the title, you sort of know what it's about in many cases before you even go in. And this movie, I feel like, really banks on that fact. Um, They're not trying to hide it. Part of the joy of this movie really is, is knowing that you're in for this sort of Faustian story. And so therefore, you're looking for those little touches, those little delicious like hints and and gags that are throughout the film, and it does deliver those. So that's what I enjoyed about watching this movie. I remember really enjoying it when I first saw it. Coming back into it the second time, I actually enjoyed it too, but I have to say, it's a little long. A little long. Yeah. Thanks, Alyssa. You know, I don't know if you did this on purpose, but if you've been a long-standing listener of our podcast, you know, Craig and I are not huge fans of really long movies. <laughs> it's, it's not like we have busy social lives or anything. I think we just don't want to sit through a story for more than an hour and a half. This is two and a half hours of story. So it'll be interesting for us to talk about um, how this, <laughs> both of us, to talk about how this affected us. All right, so that's my history with this movie. Craig, how about you? Yeah, I don't remember when I saw it, but it had to be soon after it came out. It came out, what, in 97? And that was the year that I graduated high school. And I remember owning it in college, I probably on VHS, I don't remember. We watched it uh, quite a bit. I, I remember liking it a lot. It was a movie that my partner and I both enjoyed and we watched quite a bit. But it had been a really, really long time since I had seen it. And I kind of had it in my mind that it wasn't going to be as good as I remembered it being. But I was actually kind of surprised. I, I think it holds up pretty well. It's not perfect. And there are definitely some things that we can chuckle about uh, but uh, I still enjoyed it and frankly when I didn't remember it being two and a half hours long either and when I saw that I'm like seriously but for me it really didn't feel that long no the, the story yeah, the story is uh, pretty engaging and it moves. I, I watched it by myself, uh, and then last night I was talking about it with my partner, and I said it's it's kind of weird that it's two and a half hours long because really not all that much happens. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I mean, it's it, you could you could you know summarize the plot probably in a minute, like not a whole lot. I mean, I guess that's not really fair. I guess a lot does happen, but. 
it's all one pretty simple trajectory from beginning to end. Interesting things to look at, some interesting performances. One of my favorite things about this is uh, that it's one of Charlize Theron's early roles. She was only 21 when this movie filmed, and, and she looks great. It's obvious that in the decades that have followed, she has really improved in her craft. That's not to say that she's bad in this movie, because she's not. She just uh, seems a little bit wet behind the ears. But So I, that's interesting. Al Pacino, I think, is really charismatic and interesting in this movie. Keanu Reeves? Hmm? <laughs> he's he's okay i guess <laughs> he's okay you know all right let me let me put this out there all right i do not join the throngs and crowds of people that say keanu reeves is just this horrible actor uh, i i think he's a perfectly fine actor is he the best is he gonna win and you know i mean no <laughs> but yeah. he he ends up getting cast in roles that he's quite well suited for you know, you look at Bill and Ted, you look at The Matrix, you look at this, especially you look at this and you look at The Matrix. In these movies, he plays these kind of blank slate kind of guys, right? Mm -hmm. um, you can't fault him for being sort of a blank slate actor when he's playing a blank slate sort of guy. This is a movie, like you said, you can summarize it really quickly. It's, it's like The Firm, except instead of the mafia, it's the devil. This right. really, really successful lawyer uh, takes an offer he can't refuse from a firm in New York City, and everything is wonderful, and he's getting offered a ton of money, and everything's too good to be true. He never loses a case, blah, blah, blah. And it turns out, as we know from the very beginning of the movie, it's, it's, not, a, it's not a surprise, but it turns out that the, lead, the head of this firm is Satan. Satan. Mm -hmm. So, uh, yep. and he plays this attorney who's a little amoral. Like, he's a lot more interested in winning the cases and not so interested in whether or not his clients are guilty, which is interesting. Um, you know, it starts out with <laughs> the movie just goes right there. I mean, it starts out with the most unsympathetic defendant and case you could possibly get, right? It's a child molester. Right. It's this girl who's on a stand who's crying, and she's describing this teacher who asked her to come to his office after school and then puts his hand up her dress and her skirt and all kinds of things. And Keanu Reeves' character, whose name is Kevin, is is defending this man he looks over and he sees this guy like sweating like he's reliving it and he's like moving his fingers under the desk and it's just uber creepy now it creeps him out and he asks for uh, a recess before the cross-examination and and he has to run into the bathroom and just like splash cold water on his face and stuff in that bathroom he runs into a reporter who's like never lost a case yet ha 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 well you're about to meet your first loss basically because he's like this guy's totally indefendable keanu reeves character kevin takes that as a challenge and this is his this is the guy right he just knows what it takes to win he goes back out there and he brutally casts doubt on this girl on the stand while she's crying in a very blank-faced way. It's clear he's just clicked this, this switch in his head, right? Switched off his morality, is kind of a machine just focused on winning this case. You threatened those children, didn't you? That's not the way it happened. You told them to lie, to falsely claim that Mr. Geddes had hurt them. These things did happen. Because if they didn't go along, you were going to tell everyone about this special party. They happened to me. So you made up a story 
a special story, a story about a math teacher who was tough on you, who kept you after class, a huge hog beast you didn't like. That's what really happened, isn't it? No, I didn't want to be the only one. And he ends up getting this guy off. And they all celebrate afterwards uh, in the bar. Him, um, one of his partners, and his wife. And his wife, like you said, uh, Charlize Theron, plays her. Her name is Marianne. And they're super excited that they won the case. And they've blocked the whole notion of the fact that the guy was guilty out of their head. And as the movie goes on, you realize that they all know this. They've just set aside the fact that they often get guilty people off. That's just his skill. It's his talent. It's what he's good at and what he gets his pride in his job from, which is interesting because it is actually the lawyer's job. Mm, Yeah. Public defenders... It doesn't matter. This is a bedrock of our of our justice system in the United States, that you are uh, entitled to defense. You are entitled to the best defense you can possibly get. They're public defenders who are probably slogging in this all day long for very little pay, <laughs> where they have to defend scummy people, nevertheless, uh, in court and do their best. So it's interesting. I think it does set up a very interesting moral quandary you know, you can laugh and say, well, ha, 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 the evil lawyer, blah, blah, blah. It's kind of like a joke. But in defense of lawyers, this is part of their job, right? Mm-hmm. They do have to do this. And so it does set up an interesting plot for the film and an interesting character in him. I don't fault his performance when he's flipping that switch at all. I think he's kind of well cast in here, even though, as I will admit, in other aspects of the movie where he needs to be a little more down to earth and emotional, he doesn't quite rise to the challenge. <laughs> yeah. And that was interesting watching this again, because I don't know if it's age or what, but this time around watching it, I, it was more difficult for me to sympathize with his character. And, and mm-hmm. even, you know, uh, Charlize Theron is very beautiful and she's very dewy eyed and wants Kevin, her husband, um, starts to see, you know, they're, they're, they live in Gainesville, Florida, which is presented as being like this backwoods hillbilly place, which it's not. <laughs> it's, you know, uh, yeah. a very urban uh, area. But they're just kind of painted, both of them really, but her especially, as these kind of innocent, naive characters. But this time watching it, I I just thought, you know, he's kind of a dick. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, I get it. I, and, and I understand I'm not naive. I understand that that's how our justice system works. But at the same time, you kind of have to call into question somebody's moral standing when they are defending people like this disgusting guy in this first part. I mean, you were very subtle talking about him, like sweating and stuff. This is when uh, the the girl on the stand, who's played by Heather Matazaro, who I really like uh, mm, from Welcome to the Dollhouse and lots of other things. You can tell that she's probably the kind of tween girl who maybe kind of has an attitude, um, and he kind of plays on that a little bit. But at the same time, she's just a kid, and she's describing these things that happened to her, and this skeezy guy who he's sitting right next to. Um, defending is literally touching himself like (laughs) in the courtroom while this girl is describing what's going on and yet he allows his pride when he's challenged by that reporter in the bathroom he allows his pride to take over 
And, you know, arguably, in the context of the movie, he's very talented at what he does. And he comes back out, and he just completely discredits this girl, um, who's clearly upset, and uh, he gets the guy off. And and that was a little bit hard for me to reconcile uh, this time around. And it just continues uh, throughout. He just keeps being put intentionally, unbeknownst to him, but intentionally, he keeps getting put in these situations where he's forced to do something that is arguably amoral. And so it was a little bit more difficult for me to sympathize with him this time around. But I guess, you know, he gets a redemptive moment at the end, so it's fine. Whatever. (laughs) (laughs) Well... One thing about the movie is it's very heavy-handed, I think. There's very little that's subtle about it, especially as it gets toward the end. In that way, it's almost predictable. Like, if you go into this movie having seen the previews or having seen the title, you kind of know where it's going, and it pretty much goes exactly in the direction you're expecting it to go. There's some twists in there, and of course, a lot of interesting things happen that are shocking and scary, but at the same time... I don't think I ever wondered, ooh, what's going to happen next? And then there's a, a morality, and I think we'll get to there at, you know, when we come to the end of the movie, that just kind of gets beaten over the head like, okay, now we're going to tell you uh, everything we, we want. We want to make sure you didn't miss, <laughs> you know, earlier on in the movie. So, But yeah, they have a big celebration uh, and at a bar, and a guy approaches him and says, hey, I have an offer for you uh, back in New York City. We want you to help out with the jury selection because you're the best. And at first he thinks it's a joke, and then the guy holds out an envelope and says, well, here's my offer. And I just have to say, I love this about movies. Like, they're pretty smart, right? Like, <laughs> I don't know if you, like, see a movie from the 20s or 30s or something, and somebody comes in and wants to make a big offer for somebody. They're like, I'm going to pay you $5 a week. And they're like, oh, my God, right? And now in, <laughs> now in like, 2020, that doesn't play so well. But at l- l- some, some point in history, movies got really smart, and they were just, like, they kept this part silent, right? So he just hands him an envelope. He opens the envelope he looks at, and he's like, are you for real? And he just gives him a look, and then they go. <laughs> yeah, so and then they're off to New York. Then they're off to New York, right? So they end up in New York, and this firm is huge. No, well, not before. His his mom oh, who, yes. uh, is played by uh, Judith Ivy, who I also really like. Um, she's popped up in uh, a bunch of TV and movies and bit roles. She was in a really obscure movie from the 80s called Hello Again with Shelley Long. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I remember that. And movie. I love that movie. Is it really that obscure? I think it played on cable a heck of a lot. <laughs> uh, maybe. I really liked it. She was in it. She played the, the wacky sister in that movie. But anyway, in this movie, she's uh, the very religious mother of Kevin, the lawyer, and from the very beginning, she is worried about him going to New York, like New York is, you know, Gomorrah or something, and um, she doesn't, she's worried, but they go anyway, and um, everything seems great. You know, what he's in, initially hired for is to do jury selection for a trial, because apparently that's what he's really good at. And there's this whole scene where he's, like, super crazy, insightful about these potential jurors. Yeah. It, it, play, it plays almost silly uh, at this point. Like, at just point, somehow... Yeah. He doesn't know how, but it's somehow he just has this amazing insight into these potential jurors. And he picks this jury, and they're all super happy with him. And so immediately he's basically offered a job. And that's when we meet 
I guess, the principal antagonist, John Milton, played by Al Pacino. Um, and it's funny that his name is John Milton because that's the author of Paradise Lost, which is about the fall of man. There are even references to the text uh, throughout. Um, but Al Pacino, like you said, he turned down this role several times, and, and he recommended other people for it. He recommended Sean Connery for it. He recommended Robert Redford for it. I think that he's great in this role for a lot of reasons. And one of the reasons that I think that he's so good is that he portrays such confidence and that is it really effective coming from and he even comments on this throughout the movie that he's this small little guy you know he i have no idea how tall al pacino is but like i would guess maybe like five six you know like he's he's this little guy he's not movie star handsome like Keanu Reeves or somebody else um, but he just exudes confidence and power and when Keanu Reeves character first meets him it's in his office at the top of this New York City skyscraper and like they go out on the roof where there are like all these infinity pools and he offers him the job but he talks to him about pressure changes everything pressure some people you squeeze them they focus Others fold. Can you summon your talent at will? Can you deliver on a deadline? Can you sleep at night? When do we talk about money? He takes on the job. One of the interesting things that happens in this rooftop conversation is that Milton asks Kevin about his mom. Kevin tells him, you know, she's real religious and she's worried about me coming out here. And he, Milton says, ah, behold, I send you out as sheep amidst the wolves. Kevin's basically like, yeah, that's, you know, how she feels or whatever. But that comes up later. It's significant later, which is why I bring it up now. Yeah. But he, he takes the job and everything seems great. Like they get given this amazing, ridiculously amazing uh, apartment. It, it's like a building for the firm. Like John Milton owns the whole building and, and the top dogs in the firm work there. And they're welcomed into this environment by all the people who work for this firm, the neighbors a- across the hall, the the wife of one of the other lawyers uh, kind of befriends Marianne right away, and um, it just seems like you know a dream come true, as I suppose these things are meant to initially. Yeah, I, I just want to talk really quick about that scene on the roof. I read in the trivia about it that that was not done with the blue screen; that there actually was a very very high fiftieth floor rooftop that they filmed this on, and there is no railing outside here. Yeah. I mean, it's meant to be kind of a creepy, scary scene, just the fact that they're so close to the edge here. Of course, it's very symbolic. But for me, as a guy who's not a big fan of heights, that was <laughs> that Same. was one of the scariest parts of the movie, is just watching them casually strolling around inches away from the edge uh, of this 
high, high building with no railing. Just <laughs> I kept thinking, I hope a big wind doesn't come. I know, like, right? <laughs> <laughs> it's going to blow little Al Pacino right off into the sunset. <laughs> oh. <laughs> I had shades back to The Exorcist 2. Remember when we did Exorcist 2 and Linda Blair has that scene where she steps out uh, onto a part yeah. of the roof without a railing and it turned out that during the production it was literally a, without a railing and she was just like half a step away from her actual death mm-hmm. and how irresponsible that was. Oh gosh, I was just thinking about that this whole this whole time. I was just like, oh. I mean, I know they're safe and still alive, but this drove me crazy. <laughs> <laughs> right. No, yeah. I feel you. I feel you. And but right away it's not all wonderful because uh, his wife starts decorating the apartment, and uh, this woman, uh, her name is Jackie, uh, who's like you said the wife of one of the other partners in this firm, uh, is just being super friendly and really helpful with her. They take her out shopping. She stands and gives her advice on painting the walls, but. She's a little critical about everything, right? Like, uh-huh. she starts to paint the wall with the colors she pulled out. She's like, mm, it doesn't really match your complexion. So she starts to paint the wall a different color, and she's like, mm, that's not it either. And his wife, Marianne's getting visibly frustrated by this. Then she goes out with them shopping. She advises her, well, I guess I'm getting a little ahead of things. I'm, probably I better talk about the party. Well, and, and there's also another court case real quick. The first case that Kevin actually himself deals with. Um, it's basic. They call it a health code violation case, which I suppose it is. But basically, this guy is in trouble for like slaughtering animals in the basement of his convenience store or something like that. And it's perfectly obvious that this guy is practicing some sort of dark magic or something like that. Mm. And Kevin has to go meet with him. The guy asks him, "What's the name of the prosecutor?" And Kevin tells him, and the guy says he pulls out this huge tongue like a cow tongue out of the refrigerator and goes to start putting nails in it and he says all right i'll do everything that i can to silence this guy you go do your job they have the hearing and the prosecutor has a coughing fit and is unable to object to anything that kevin does and so they win the case and so there are these not so subtle hints throughout that there is something nefarious and and dark uh, going on, but apparently Kevin is just kind of blind to it, as I suppose you would be. I mean, you don't expect black magic to like pop into your everyday <laughs> life, so uh, I'll forgive him for being a little naive on those points. But it's true. Anyway, if from from the very beginning, from the very beginning, he's really successful. So. Jackie's kind of working on Marianne. She's really being friendly to her, but in the same sense, she's also warning her that, you know, you're never going to see your husband again, basically. She's like, uh, we're just sort of resigned to this fact that our job is basically to work, play, or breed. That's all we can do. So in that way, she is clearly trying to work to drive a bit of a wedge between them. And then on the other side, Kevin's getting really, really friendly with John Milton. They go out on a walk, And like you said, this is where he has his speech about how I'm a little guy, but they don't see me coming, and that's my big secret. You know, what's your big secret? It's also interesting because uh, as Milton is out walking around and as he's talking on the telephone, it seems like he can speak any language. Uh Speaking Cantonese with a guy uh, in the market, he's speaking Italian or something on the phone, all these things. Uh, And so there is obviously something really 
uh, off about him, but he very quickly befriends Kevin, gives him a lot of confidence, uh, and tells him he sees they're going to be great things. I, I love one of his lines that he says, he's like, use the subway, Kevin. It's, it's one of my favorite ways to get around. There are all these nice little touches here about, oh, fire, right? And oh, like underground and all these little devil, you know, references that are really, really cute, I think, just sprinkled liberally throughout the movie. Anyway, they do end up at this party that Milton is is hosting. And Milton's kind of working his magic on Marianne. Um, when, at a time when Kevin is off, he sits down next to her and he just starts basically flirting with her in, a, in his own way. And he's like, uh, I don't like your hair. She's like, well, what's wrong with it? And he's like, well, there's nothing wrong with it, but it's not you. Try putting it up. Uh, and then... She puts it up, and he's like, look at yourself in the mirror, and, and he's like, a woman's neck and a woman's shoulders are just, uh, uh, he just goes on in very, very sultry way, and you can tell she's, he's just kind of casting a spell over her. At the same time, Kevin, from the minute he came into this firm, he's been getting these glances and, and slight run-ins with this woman, a beautiful red-haired woman with a red dress always, again, really nice touch. She is there at the firm too, and they have a discussion out on the balcony, which, so her name's Christabella anyway, and they have this conversation, and if the first scene wasn't a green screen, this scene is so obviously green screen, it's almost distracting. <laughs> 1996 green screen i mean i feel like 1956 green screen was better than this was yeah it's 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 not good but you know that party from an outside perspective just looks like any upper crust party you know everybody's very rich and everybody's schmoozing and one of the actresses who you know in casual conversation just very kind of casually name drops donald trump like oh donald would have been here but like you know it's just like we're we're all very rich uh okay Uh it's that weird dynamic i just don't even know what to make of this at this point like now i understand the milton being very seductive and and successfully so that makes sense that's kind of the devil's mo so i get that and plus marianne is very you know young and and naive and and obviously i don't want to say easy to manipulate but i don't know how else to say it because she is but then i i this whole thing with uh kevin and christabella is just weird from the beginning like yeah the second he sees her he is just infatuated with her and then he's very blatantly flirting with her out on the patio and this is after he's promised his wife that he would not leave her alone at the party which he immediately does mm. I don't know because they paint the relationship initially between Kevin and Marianne as solid you know they 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 seem very much in love they seem very much into each other phys- physically and sexually and so to just immediately have him very obviously drawn to this other woman was a little bit unsettling for me i guess you know when it boils down to it this is all planned out you know this is all part of a bigger picture and so it's not as though he's even necessarily just seeking her out you know she's being placed very strategically in his path but it doesn't take much for him to (laughs) get into it 
You're right. I, I guess that's kind of a failing of the movie is that, you know, you would expect to see a little more drama here, right? A little more uh, difficulty of them to drive this wedge between the two of them. But this, for a movie that's two and a half hours long, it really blows through this pretty quickly, this this aspect of it. Uh-huh. And his infatuation with her is okay, like right away. I mean, I guess you could attribute some of it to a spell, you know, that's sort of being cast upon them. But mostly it comes across as he's just kind of selfish. Yeah. Or he's oblivious or something. And it does contrast a little bit with some of these more tender scenes that they have between the two of them when they show this this care and this affection for each other. So, yeah, I, I completely agree with you there. Uh, it's a little uneven in that way. It is, but at the same time, first of all, I don't think that we're supposed to think that Kevin Lomax is really a great guy. True. I mean, when it comes down to it, he's very flawed. You know, his his pride and later Al Pacino points out his vanity really are his tragic flaws. And so I don't put it past his character to consider infidelity. Like, it, you know, that doesn't seem necessarily out of character for him. Yeah. He's just selfish. It, but they are capitalizing on that. Like, unbeknownst to him... They are slowly chipping it away at Marianne. They are trying to break her, and eventually they do. Uh, you know, just little things. Like you said that uh, Milton was flirting, talking about her neck and stuff. Well, he tells her that she should cut her hair short and go back to her natural color, which she does. And it has, I mean, she's all, as we've seen in later years. Charlize Theron can chop off an arm and shave her head, and she's still hot as shit. (laughs) But it takes something away from her veneer when she gets this very modest haircut. And the other women, uh, like you said, very just kind of subtly are kind of picking away at her, making her feel insecure. Um, And right away, she starts to deteriorate. And it's pretty dramatic, the change in her. It's not as though it goes unnoticed by Kevin, but he kind of... It's not fair to say that he doesn't care, but he doesn't make her a priority. And he's constantly given the opportunity. The the devil, (laughs) Milton, (laughs) keeps telling him... I want you to drop this case. This case, Cullen. John, I've got a jury showing up you this morning. You love this woman. Yes, of course I do. What are you doing, Ken? She's sick. Everyone will understand. I'll understand. We're going to talk about this. Oh, listen to yourself, Kevin. We've got to talk about this. It's your wife, man. She's sick. She needs you. She's got to come first. He keeps giving him these opportunities, um, which I think is very clever, because yes. ultimately it has to be a question of his free will. Uh, he can't be entirely forced into something. He can't be entirely manipulated into something. It has to be his choice. And it is very manipulative, but he he constantly keeps choosing work over his wife. Um, and ultimately, you know, that leads to her demise. Yeah, and that's really important to the movie that the devil doesn't... D- Milton's character doesn't overtly do anything right it's it's all manipulation it's allowing him them to make these decisions themselves that lead to their downfall but there's some supernatural stuff still going on yeah like um when the wife goes out with the two girlfriends they're in a changing room and they're talking and and 
I couldn't help but notice also that alcohol plays a very big role in this. It seems like both Kevin and his wife are almost constantly drinking through this movie. And with her, it seems like she gets into it to cope. But one of the first scenes, you know, with them in, in the very beginning is at a bar, you know, putting shots back. When he accepts the letter from the guy, he's a little half drunk on the way to the bathroom. When he's out on the, mm-hmm. on the balcony and he's being sort of seduced by that girl, he's putting them back. And so I feel like maybe that was the excuse or the crutch that you can kind of put under it. Uh, instead of the devil's spell, it's that these guys, that both of them are 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 coping in this way, uh, and it's leading them to uh, relax a little too much and make these decisions a, a bit under the influence. I, I felt like that was a pretty strong aspect to the movie, especially at the end when he's toward the end when he's offered a drink and he actually refuses it. I think that might be the first time in the whole movie he's actually refused to drink. Anyway, that was a little something I noticed. I, I think it's cute when he goes up to Milton's apartment, he looks around and he's remarking to the other guys, he's like, this is it? Like, it's just a giant room. It has this huge sculpture behind his desk. And I do remember this very distinctly from originally seeing the film. This sculpture is pretty awesome. It has, it's, it's white, it goes from floor to ceiling, like two stories up. And it's got these people kind of coming out of waves, bodies, these kind of nude bodies coming out. In this version of the movie that we saw, which is the home release version, that sculpture is digitally replaced with something that's a little more abstract. Because apparently it just looked a little bit too much like a a very famous sculpture called Ex Nihilo, uh, which is over the uh, National Cathedral. And it does. If you go online and you look this sculpture up, it looks exactly like that sculpture and they had to digitally replace it after a lawsuit saying that this sculpture which is supposed to be about um, creation and the birth of man was sort of perverted by this movie it's obviously a copy of that sculpture but it's made to seem demonic and and almost the opposite of the sculptor's original intent so the sculptor was able to win that lawsuit and therefore they had to go back in and digitally replace it so at the end of the film, they have to do some little tricks to come back in with the special effects to, to have those people come back out of what essentially for the rest of the movie is, is just a bunch of waves. I didn't know about that whole lawsuit thing, and I, I think that I had, like I said, the um, original home release, which was on VHS, and, and when this lawsuit was filed, they had already started... Um, producing uh, the initial uh, print of uh, home video. And I guess in the settlement, they were allowed to continue to distribute what had already been made. They had to put a sticker on the box that said this is in no way affiliated with that sculpture or whatever. But I think that that's the one that I had because I don't remember it ever being blank without the people in it because mm. it looks with the people in it, it 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 almost looks like souls in torment like like kind of in a whirlpool or a or something like that and now it still looks really cool and they did an excellent job replacing it digitally you can't tell uh i mean it looks real yeah. but it was also interesting me for me to watch it having only seen the original because when Kevin first walks in there, he takes notice uh, and is very intrigued by this sculpture. And it, it, it just reads a little bit odd to me now because mm. without all those bodies in there, it's not really all that 
intriguing. intriguing. Yeah, it's just big <laughs> and, so and you dramatic. See, you, yeah, yeah, you see this look on his face like, whoa, that's crazy. And then you see the <laughs> sculpture and you're like, well, it's not really any big deal. Um, but uh, at, at the end, the body, I, I, I guess maybe because in the end they the bodies animate and move around and stuff and uh, i guess that was unlike the original enough i don't know uh but compromises interesting interesting but yeah interesting backstory nonetheless um you were talking about okay you should talk about the shopping scene because that's important and then i'll talk about the central lawsuit that comes up Okay, okay. So she's shopping with these ladies, and her hair is cropped cut, and she's drinking her wine, and she already is starting to look a little frazzled. And these ladies are very carefree, trying on different outfits and things, and they're talking about nipping and tucking and things like that. And Jackie pulls off her her bra and uh, is talking about her boobs and says, hey, are they real? Just, you know, do, do you think they're real or fake? And Charlize Theron's character, Marianne's like, I, I, yeah, I don't know. They look real. It must be real. <laughs> Feel them. Oh, no, it's okay, really. Go ahead. No, no, no. That's the ultimate test. Come on. Feel real? Yes, absolutely real. <laughs> Dr. Robert. And as she slips on her shirt again, her face morphs. Her smile suddenly gets like pointed like basically a teeth full of fangs and very crooked and her eyes slit up and and move over it is super freaky yeah and this is the thing i remembered more than anything else about this movie and her body it's like under her skin there are hands moving around caressing her body and then she slips the the shirt on just kind of looks at her you know smiling and, and and walks away and I think probably also because she's drinking the alcohol and she is so frazzled, I th- she initially sort of writes it off as, I'm seeing things. And so this is another one of these little tricks that are coming in. Um, it happens more than once that somebody will look at one of the people in this firm and their face will morph like this just very temporarily and make them think that they're seeing things. She does think that she's seeing things, but she's also totally freaked out it's not like oh yeah i mean she gets up and and hightails it out of there mm-hmm. and and she talks to her husband about it but obviously he just kind of thinks that she's losing it she is but not just because she's a crazy person but because this outside force is is manipulating her um soon after this you know she freaks out in this moment and he tries to uh, comfort her and he says something like let's make a baby because she's been talking about having babies the the whole movie and um, they start to make out but all of a sudden he is seeing Christabella and it keeps cutting back and forth pretty seamlessly I thought it looked pretty good Mm -hmm. Um, between uh, Charlize Theron and Connie Nielsen the actress who plays uh, Christabella but it's it's weird because it's it's more than just fantasy like he's he's literally seeing her at least that's how I read it their sexual tryst is like it's like a threesome (laughs) yeah it's weird Um, but but Charlize Theron eventually realizes that he's not there you know that's what she says she's like where are you and he's like I'm right here and she's like no you're not and she's obviously distraught and her character deterioration is just constantly 
progressing from very early on. Um, but meanwhile, the the big case that Kevin gets put on is this triple homicide case. Uh, the guy's name is Cullen. His last name is Cullen. He's played by Craig T. Nelson. What's happened, according to Cullen, uh, he came home late from work and he found his wife, his son, and uh, a housekeeper dead uh, in the apartment. But he's in trouble because... According to him, he panicked upon finding all these people dead, and he touched everything, and he touched the murder weapon, and he had blood on him. His justification is, well, I panicked, but I'm the one who found them. I called the police. I I didn't kill anybody. And he claims that he is – his main concern at this point is his 14-year-old stepdaughter who is being kept away from him because he's a suspect in this murder. And that's the case that Kevin gets put on, and it's really high profile, and he's in the news, and reporters are following him and Marianne around. His mom, Alice, uh, comes to visit, and she's only there for one night, and they come back. uh, Well, I I don't think that's intentional. I think that she she was coming for an extended visit, Mm. Um, but... That first night that she's there, they're in the lobby of the building, having just come from dinner. Milton approaches with two of the beautiful women from the firm, one of them being Christabella. And they all end up in the elevator together. And Alice is clearly uncomfortable from the get-go. But you can tell that she's trying to play it cool. But she's, she's obviously... Something's off. But then the next day, when uh, Kevin gets up to go to work and he's headed out the door, his mom kind of greets him in the in the foyer or whatever uh, and says, I'm leaving. I got to get out of here. Uh, I miss my church. I got to go. And he wants her to stay, but she says she won't. Uh, and she says, you need to do better by Marianne. She's not doing well. And he says, well, then why don't you stay here and take care of her? And she says, I, I can't stay here. I'll take her with me if you'll let me, but he won't. And so she leaves. And that's everything just kind of blows up from here. I mean, I'm condensing this a lot because this whole court case draws out for a while. It turns out that the guy had motive because he had a prenup, and in the prenup there was a clause that if uh, there was any infidelity, he wouldn't get anything, and it turns out his wife found out that he was having an affair, and he says he was having an affair with his assistant, and the assistant verifies that. But when Kevin is prepping her for the stand, um, he's asking her all these personal questions, and he asks her if the guy, Colin, is circumcised. And she hesitates when he continues to press her. She lashes out at him, and he can just tell that she's lying, that something's not right. And that's another time when he goes to Milton and says, look, she's lying. I, I, I think maybe this guy is guilty. And Milton again says, fine, drop the case. He says, well, you know, we'll put somebody else on it. I will have your back. Whatever you decide to do, do whatever you have to do. It's fine. But Kevin, his pride won't allow him, and he does call the assistant up to the stand. She testifies that she was having an affair 
with the guy, Colin, and that she was with him on the night of the murders, and so the guy is acquitted. And I, I feel like this is the turning point where Kevin kind of realizes what he's doing. Because at the funeral, oh, somebody dies. Uh, oh. <laughs> <laughs> Eddie. Do, do, I, we've, we've, yeah, Eddie Barzoon, who we haven't even talked about, but his death is uh, pretty cool. You want to talk about it? Yeah, yeah. Eddie Barzoon, who's played by Jeffrey Jones in maybe one of the last roles he had before he got into real deep trouble. He's clearly a very hard worker at the firm. Clearly, he's working to be partner, and he's been there a long time, and he's never gotten past manager, head manager. And he he's in the basement shredding documents and stuff. And, uh, you know, uh, Kevin, Kevin pops in there and kind of notices they're doing something. He just ushers him out. And without even telling him, Milton has promoted Kevin now to partner. How the f- does your name get on the firm's charter? What? It looks like it's been there for years. So, now you're a partner. When did that happen? You know, I still am the managing director of this firm. You want my job? Take me head on. You backdoor me one more time, I'll take your partnership papers and I'll shove them down your throat. Uh, and he confronts Milton, and he goes jogging. And at the same time, Milton is having a conversation that you mentioned with Kevin about dropping the case. At the same time, Kevin confronts him about what Eddie had said. Milton says, well, we need to get Eddie in here right away. So he calls and asks them to go get Eddie. Well, what ends up happening is Eddie is out jogging in Central Park, and he starts like seeing joggers coming after him, but then he looks back behind and they sort of disappear. And He bumps into a guy, and then when he looks back, the guy's gone. Uh, he's being pursued basically almost by ghost demons or something. And then uh, he trips and falls, and there are two bums who show up with big branches and beat the death out of him. And and in this moment also, a couple of the bums are transforming a little bit into demons. Now, you know what I was kind of wondering here is, are these people really demons? Or are they just people who are under a demonic influence? Or is this vision of them just somehow supposed to, you know, kind of like a lasting before you die kind of thing, kind of like a, a, a vision that kind of shows their their emotion at the time or their influence, uh, what they're under. I don't know. Uh, were you thinking that ah, these are just supernatural creatures who are beating them to death? Uh, I'm not sure, really. Uh, the impression that I got was probably they're just, like, they're probably actually real people who are just being manipulated, mm. like, physically. Uh, I, and, and who knows? Maybe they're bad people. I, I don't know. But I just got the impression that Milton's had the power to you know, manipulate these people into doing his bidding or whatever. Yeah. Um, but yeah, they, they, they kill him. But uh, Milton has this great monologue over this whole scene where uh, Barzoon is running and he's having these visions and, you know, Milton's talking about, like, the fall of man and our flaws that lead us to destruction and stuff. And You build egos the size of cathedrals, fiber optically connect the world, to every eager impulse. <laughs> Grease even the dullest dreams with these dollar green, gold-plated fantasies until every human becomes an aspiring emperor, becomes his own god. 
And where can you go from there? Meanwhile, it's almost kind of like Marianne is experiencing this too or witnessing it mm. like from her window kind of. Yeah. Um, and so that's just even pushing her further, you know, over the edge. But he ends up getting killed. And at the funeral, Colin shows up with his 14-year-old stepdaughter. Kevin is sitting behind him, and he sees Colin, like, caressing this girl's back. First of all, she's totally dressed inappropriately for a 14-year-old at a funeral. She's wearing, like, a low-cut dress, and um, another woman in the firm tells her she looks ravishing. Like, obviously, this is an unholy (laughs) thing that's that's going on. There's some real slime balls here, yeah. And Kevin clearly knows what's going on. He kind of, like, he envisions Cullen as Getty, the guy that he had gotten off in the beginning for child molestation. And it bothers him to the point that he gets up and storms out. Meanwhile, Milton is standing in the back of the church, and I love this scene. Mm. He's, like, looking up mischievously at the paintings of the cherubs and the angels and the saints. And uh, he puts his finger over the holy water font. It, he's like a petulant kid, like, I'm going to touch it. I'm going to touch it. I'm going to touch it. <laughs> and uh, eventually he dips his finger in the holy water font and the holy water begins to boil. And if it hadn't been entirely projected from the beginning that Milton was the devil, I suppose this is the scene where they're like, yep, you were right. He is. He's literally the devil. Yeah. <laughs> in, in that way, it's a, it's a little bombastic. It's a little over the top, but it's kind of delicious in that way, right? Because this is intercut, I think, also with with something else going on, right? I I guess I kind of got ahead of myself a little bit. After the trial, Kevin goes home, and the doorman tells him that Marianne, there's something wrong with her. They tried to stop her, but she left, and she went to this church. And so Kevin goes and finds her at this church, and she's in a bad way. She's crying. She's upset. She's wrapped up in a comforter. And he asks her what's wrong, and she says... Uh, he came over to the apartment. Eventually, he's like, who? Who are you talking about? And she says, Milton. But what she says was, you know, at first he was really nice, and he talked to me, and we talked for a really long time, and I haven't had anybody to talk to in so long. Mm. But then she starts crying, and he says, did somebody hurt you? This is before she's revealed who it was. And she nods, uh, yes. And he says, who was it? And she says, Milton. And he says, what did uh, he do? And get your beeper ready. Uh, he says, he f***ed me all afternoon. And he accuses her of lying because Milton ha- was with him in court all afternoon. But she is adamant. She starts to freak out. And she stands up and she drops the comforter that she had herself wrapped in. And she's nude and she's covered in horrible cuts all over her body. And she says, he did this to me. And he grabs her and comforts her, but then also has her committed <laughs> to the <Yeah>. hospital. <laughs> I mean, I don't know what else you would do. Yeah. Uh, she's I mean, obviously in a bad way. It's a loving gesture at this point. Yeah. Um, the nurse says she's conscious and calm. Now would be a good time to say goodbye. And it's really sad. She's strapped down uh, to this hospital gurney. And it appears that she's been sedated, and they're walking along, and that's when she says to him, we did this to ourselves, you know, we knew it, you know, all that money, uh, it was blood money, and we knew it, and we took it, 
and now we're paying the price. After the whole church scene, he goes back to the hospital to see her, and his mother has come back, and she's there. The mom says, I need to talk to you, and she takes him out in the hall and confesses, I have been to New York before. When I was a kid, we came here with a Bible group, and we stayed in this hotel, and I was shy and naive, but there was this busboy at the hotel restaurant where I ate every night, and every night he would talk to me, and he was kind to me, and he was your father. Kevin's like, are you serious that you're telling me this now? Like, this is the worst possible time. And she's like, no, you have to listen. And he's dismissive, but she insists, and she gets in his face, and she tells him it was Milton. Now, that was a twist I did not see coming. <laughs> I did. I, I did saw it coming see. a mile away. Really? Really? Yes. Okay. The fact, the fact that his father was absent, that he never knew who he was, and then mm. her response to him in the elevator, like, obviously she knew there was something going on with him or knew who he was or something. I just took it as, you know, she's hyper-religious and he's the devil, so she's going to be, like, extra attuned to, you know, his evil, and that she was just, she saw right through him. Well, that could be, too, I suppose. Yeah, and then they're in the middle of having this conversation, and there's a screaming going on down the hall— uh, and his wife has barricaded herself in the room because one of the other people in the firm uh, has been pushing her around in a wheelchair or something, holding behind her chair, and gives her a mirror. And when she looks in the mirror, she sees this woman behind her reflected, and the woman also does this little demon transformation that she's seen before. She freaks out, she runs to a room, she barricades herself in, and with a piece of the broken mirror... As he is bashing the glass in and nobody is coming to help, including this other woman who's just standing in the background, Uh she pulls it out and slits her own throat. It's really pretty tragic. It's sad. It's super sad. And he runs in and he's he's trying to stop the bleeding and the nurse comes in. It's a horrible scene. And I think Keanu Reeves does a fantastic job of acting this. The only thing I've got to say is almost after this scene, we go right through the plot some more and he bounces back awfully quick. (laughs) You know? I mean, he's clearly pissed. He's clearly whatever, but um, I don't know. He's just not as destroyed as I think I would be after having been witness and party to this whole incident. Yeah, I I see what you're saying, but at the same time, he's figuring out what's going on and so he's very purposeful he goes outside and that woman i think her name was pam says oh you're afraid don't worry he'll take all your fear away go to him he's waiting for you and kevin goes to walk down the street and of course this is right in the middle of new york and this this street is completely abandoned yeah he goes back uh to milton's it's his office but it's the office in his house and he finds him there and he basically confronts him at this point you know milton is just very forthcoming kevin at first is very angry and he has a gun and he's like what did you do to my wife and milton very crassly tells him um and so kevin shoots him a bunch of times but it doesn't have any effect because he's the Mm -hmm. devil yeah, and then they, you know, Milton just lays it all out for him, and, and I, I really like that. Oh, yeah, <laughs> like, this is what it is, you know. Like y- you're, you're my son. Christabella is there too, and he says, "This is your sister." Well, your half sister. He says, "You guys are the future. Your seed is the key to the future," and this scene is just so. 
I, I want to say it's really good, but the reason that it's so good is because it's so gross. Like, <laughs> basically, Milton is like, here's your sister. She's hot. F- her. I'm going to stand over here and watch. And then... <laughs> Dance to Frank Sinatra. right and the sculpture in the background all the people in there started moving and they're doing it too you know on but the dialogue here is so good it is i really this is a great scene and it's a long scene but it's just absolutely delicious where he he does he he basically recaps the movie every objection that kevin has of you did this you did this you did this he goes whoa 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 i didn't do anything you did it. In fact, mm-hmm. I gave you so many outs. I gave you so many suggestions. He's like, that's the point. I can't really do anything, but you've got this free will, and that's the tool I have to work with. And he says, vanity is my favorite sin. And I love that because that's mm. what it's been about. It's been about pride, and it's been about vanity from the beginning for this and guy. And Pacino's great. Yeah, he's really good. I mean, he's a great actor. It's not like this comes as any surprise. No. But this could... A different actor could have really hammed this up in a way that... Would have been cheesy. Yeah, and, and it's not. Like, he's just very cool. Mm-hmm. It really, really works. Yeah, I think he does great. Kevin Spacey was considered for this role. It would have been so different with Kevin Spacey in it, you know? Mm-hmm. It, it probably would have been more sinister, you know, like a little more... But Pacino just comes across as this matter-of-fact, likable guy, which is what's so disarming about him, which is exactly what he's told us. And it just, it's great. And so the girl strips down. He's like, all right. You know, Kevin's like, all right, well, I'm going to, we got to make a deal. And he throws some of um, Pacino's words back at him. You know, he's like, well, what do you want? He's like, well, we're always dealing, right? This isn't good enough. What are you going to give me? He's basically telling him he's going to give him ultimate power. You know, he's going to be able to win every case he ever wants to win. He's not going to have anything to worry about for the rest of his life. So he lays her down with his help (laughs) on on the altar and is about to go at it with her. And he looks up. And he says, oh, you forgot one thing or whatever. And he says, what? He's like, I've got free will, right? He says, yeah. And he pulls out the gun and he shoots himself in the head. Uh-huh. That was brilliant. I honestly also did not imagine how this was going to end. That that did not come across my mind. No, me either. It was so cool. And it's Pacino is so pissed and he's angry and he's go- going up in flames. And I mean, everything kind of falls apart around them. Then, boom, we are back in the restroom at the beginning of the movie at this trial of this child molester. Like Keanu Reeves has been in a trance this whole time or whatever, and he's been jolted to reality in the mirror just as that reporter is walking out. So it's like he's kind of played this all out in his head. You know, it's like he's had this um, alternate dimensional experience or whatever, and here he is back again. And he has a choice to make, and he ends up making a different choice this time. He goes in, and he asks to be recused from the case. That shocks everybody, and the judge is like, are you kidding me? You know what this is doing? He's like, yeah, I know full well, you know, the ramifications of this. And he walks out with his wife, and, and they embrace, and he, she's like, what in the world are you doing? And he says, finally, the right thing. And then there's a bit of a coda. How did you read that? Like, not that it was all a dream, right? No. It's just kind of like it kind of like things reset. Yeah, basically. That's how I felt. Like, well, I mean, if he's the devil's son, you know, like maybe he can't be killed. <laughs> yeah, maybe. Like I have to say that it was nice to see Charlize Theron alive and well, and she's you know back to her self the way we knew her in the beginning, where she's 
far more carefree and not tortured, which is nice. <laughs> it's always nice. And so, you know, he has this uh, heroic moment where he does the right thing and recuses himself from uh, the case with, I guess, potentially consequences. I don't know how that works. Like, I thought lawyers could recuse themselves from cases and it was no big deal. Yeah. But they make it out like it's a big deal, like he's going to be disbarred or something. And they run out together, Marianne and, and Kevin, and they're followed by that same reporter from the beginning, the one um, who had told him, you know, maybe maybe it's your time to lose. You can't win them all. And this guy's like, oh my gosh, this is huge. You know, the the lawyer with a conscience, it's going to be a huge story. And Kevin's like, yeah, well, I'm going to get disbarred. And um, he's like, no, no, seriously, this is going to be huge. It's, you know, I can get you in the news. I can get you in Time Magazine. You'll be famous. Kevin and Marianne pause on the stairs on their way down and look at each other and Keanu Reeves says call me in the morning and they turn around and leave and the reporter standing at the top of the stairwell turns into Milton who just says vanity is my favorite sin (laughs) and then the Rolling Stones paint it black starts to play and credits uh, and I thought that was uh, a clever, you know, like, oh, he made he made the right decision. Everything's OK. No, you know, <laughs> the devil's always in the details. You know, the, the, there's there's always going to be temptation just because you resisted and, and beat that one temptation. Now it's just uh, here comes the next one. And, and I thought that was a really clever way. And, and I, I it, it didn't feel like a setup for a sequel or anything. It was no. just kind of a nice wink to the audience at the end. Well, you can't have a movie where the devil's defeated and he's now dead. <laughs> That's not how this works. Right. So yeah, it was it was a nice way of wrapping all that up. It was very satisfying. And and I thought the whole movie to be honest was was good. I enjoyed it and I wasn't watching the clock like I thought I would be. And I'm not sure why. I think I don't know if I was just in the right mood or if everything was just so well paced that I didn't actually feel like there were parts of the movie that dragged. And like you said, it's not like a lot goes on, but I think every scene just has a lot in it and a lot of interesting things to watch and interesting dialogue. And so for me, actually the two and a half hour running time uh, didn't seem to be a problem at all, surprisingly. And the movie itself, as far as the cinematography or anything, is nothing to speak at. It's just a very simply photographed story. It looks like any movie from the mid-90s, you know? Yeah. Which is fine. Apparently, the special effects for that scene where those sculpture is moving and things like that took like two weeks and about 40% of their budget back in 1996 to put together like $2 million just for that one scene, which might be why it didn't end up getting cut from the, the home release. Right. It doesn't hold up as well today, but... For the time, anyway, that was a pretty impressive special effect. I, yeah, and I still think it looks cool. I remember that freaking the heck out of me when I first saw it, and it's still freaking oh, yeah. the heck out of me. Yeah. yeah. Just a couple of little things that we didn't mention. I, You know, at the end, when Kevin kills himself, um, and Pacino, like, bursts into flames, and everything bursts into you know, the sculpture, the people in the sculpture are burning, and Christabella, like, turns to ash. Um, I thought it was kind of a cool touch that uh, Pacino reverts, like, to his angel form mm. um, and and it's clearly Keanu Reeves but we're meant to believe that that's um, Al Pacino's or, or, or Lomax or whatever his name is Milton's 
original form, which I thought was kind of cool. And the other thing that I'm surprised that we haven't mentioned, this movie, there is so much nudity in this movie. (laughs) It really is. I I, I was telling my partner last night, I'm like, you know this is one of Charlize Theron's first movies because she is bush out naked. (laughs) (laughs) Which they would probably have to, they would have to pay her a lot more these days. Yeah. Apparently she was really reluctant to do that because she was a, she was offered showgirls before this and turned it down for the nudity. So she, she must have thought. I think she made the right call. Project. Yeah, I think so too. We we might not be talking about her if she was in showgirls. <laughs> but no, I agree with you. The two and a half hours didn't bother me either, which really surprises me because I usually am not happy about watching movies that long. But um, it, it it didn't feel long. I was engaged the whole time and uh, I I don't think the movie holds up today as well as it did in the late 90s but I still like it I I still think it's a good movie and uh, I really think that I could have done this podcast without watching it again that's how many times I've seen it like I could have gone through it beat by beat I don't know if I'll watch it again soon but it's probably something that I will come back to. There are just too many. If nothing else, Al Pacino's performance is worth the price of admission for this movie. And these lines, this dialogue is, is just wonderful. Well, Alyssa, thank you so much for this uh, request. We really enjoyed revisiting this film from the 90s. And like I said before, we're going to be doing a lot more requests. So please go to our website. You can search us, Two Guys in a Chainsaw. You'll find us on Facebook, also on YouTube. If you leave us a comment any one of those places with your request, we'll add it to our list, and hopefully we'll get to it in the near future. Until next time, I'm Todd. And I'm Craig. With Two Guys in a Chainsaw. (laughs) 